Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our opening song is Death Before Revenge by Panger Bond. Our show today is The Political Prisoner. Call me what you will And tell me what they say For tomorrow brings a new wind And the rain has gone You have done nothing wrong. Though, to be honest, perhaps that's a matter of perspective. You marched in a demonstration, or you attended a meeting, or you wrote an essay that appeared in an underground journal, or you merely possessed a copy of that journal. Or maybe you really did break the law. You planted a bomb, carried a weapon, plotted an assassination, managed secret funds, advocated revolution. But you know this was in service of a just cause, a struggle so that others could live more freely and have the rights they deserve. Perhaps you were just a sympathetic bystander, or perhaps an officeholder who became a victim of regime change. Regardless, what you did or did not do had political meaning and a higher purpose. Surely that puts your deeds, your words, and your allegiances in a different light. One thing is for sure, you aren't a criminal. And yet you're fingerprinted, examined, interrogated, and stripped by armed officers. Perhaps you're beaten, tortured, bound. You have lost mastery of your life. You do not control your fate. On the other hand, you can't be surprised. Objectively, you could say that the state is acting in accordance with its established principles. These are the terms of political conflict. You are a political prisoner. But when this war is over And I see your face again Then I'll tell you of the warriors this is how Patrick Kenny opens his new book, Dance in Chains, and eventually asks, is there any figure in the contemporary world who inspires greater respect than the political prisoner? But surely the state intends the opposite effect, and the reason why most states have abandoned the practice, the U.S. being one glaring exception. In his book, Kenny reveals the ways prisoners transform and make use of their incarceration in countering states' efforts to control them. Patrick Kenny is professor of history and international studies at Indiana University, the author of Burdens of Freedom, Eastern Europe Since 1989, A Carnival of Revolution, Central Europe, 1989, and Rebuilding Poland, Workers and Communists, 1945 to 1950. He served as president of the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. Dance in Chains traces the history of modern political imprisonment from its origins in the mid-19th century and draws on examples from regimes ranging from communist and fascist to colonial and democratic, including Ireland, the United Kingdom, Poland, and South Africa. While considering the international movements that have sought to publicize the plight of political prisoners, Kenny examines the actions of the prisoners themselves to find universal answers to questions about the meaning and purpose of their imprisonment. Then I'll tell you of the warriors who put death in for revenge. Padre Kenny, welcome to Interchange. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Uh, your book, Dance in Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World. Um, let's talk a little bit about the subtitle, Dance in Chains. Well, we'll start with the title. Dance in Chains implies a kind of freedom, maybe, or perhaps a kind of expression, even if fettered. Does that sound right? You're going to dance, but you're in chains, so you're yeah, going to try and say something. That's right. The emphasis is both <clears throat> ways. You know, I was inspired for the title 
by an, uh, a song written by a Polish socialist in, in a Russian prison in the 1880s, which essentially says, you know, rise, comrades, shake your chains. We dance in a circle. We are free. So it's essentially saying, yeah, you've got us in chains, but we're still going to show that, you know, we are somebody and we haven't forgotten. But on the other hand, yeah, you're in chains as well. <laughs> right. And you said that uh, that's in the book as, as mazurka. Does that mean dance? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a Polish dance. Yeah, okay. Uh, so the stress here, too, uh, especially, uh, I guess, political, political imprisonment in the modern world, so the stress is on the modern. Why, why the stress there? Well, you know, uh, some people will think of uh, political prisoners as something almost eternal. And, in, of course, in some ways that's true. There are people who have political beliefs going back thousands of years who probably before recorded time who have been thrown into some kind of dungeon for opposing the king or something like Mm -hmm. that. But the more I looked at it, the more I thought that, no, there's something special about the way political prisoners have acted over the last 150 years, and that's what I wanted to focus on. Mm. So the book is a a type of genealogy from that point forward? Yeah, you could say that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I looked back further and then said, no, these are something different. Something new happens. Mm. In the middle of the 19th century onward, people start acting in a political way in prison. Mm. That's interesting. Now, you and I have, uh, through email, been talking about kind of the um, uh, periods of, I guess, response to industry and capitalism as well. And it seems like these things are rising along alongside each other, right? The industrial state and, and perhaps these, these expressions as well. Well, sure. I mean, one of the things I think you have to have for the modern political prisoner is modern prisons, mm-hmm. states that decide we need to build institutions and maybe a lot of them to hold people who have committed crimes and we decide what those crimes are, of course, mm-hmm. and also often enough for people who oppose the state in some way, either nonviolently or violently. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sadly, uh, prison, in my understanding, is kind of a commonplace uh, to my life here in this country, I suppose. Prisons are often sold to communities as uh, economic opportunities. The landscape is dotted with them, kind of like slaughterhouses across the country in many ways, uh, and schools. They look the same in a <laughs> way, right? Um, and if there are states, there are prisons, it seems like. And uh, so, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Why, why is it that the prison is a ubiquitous thing? Well, sure. Uh, If a state, as uh, as was once said, uh, means uh, that which has a monopoly on violence, then states have armies and states have prisons and police. I guess those those three things. Uh, And prisons, you know, we see armies. They're they're something that are you know they're they're easy for us to to recognize Mm -hmm. and they're paraded literally for us. Um, We see. Police, of course, but prisons we mm. don't see. Mm-hmm. Even if they're in our community, they're not obvious. Mm. You know, and I think many people would have a hard time saying exactly where a prison is mm-hmm. in their county mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to be able to point to it. I think uh, in our previous conversation with James Scott, one of the things he talked about was that uh, the, the the chain gang, the the enslaved that are doing the work outside the town, are are made invisible. They're, they're the the labor that makes the town possible happens outside of it. Well, sure. And sometimes they're wearing uh, orange right, uh, jackets right. as they're walking along the highway picking up trash. But no, prisons are generally meant to be invisible. But on the other hand, states uh, also benefit from them because they want to show, look, we, are, mm-hmm. we have put these people away. We've put them away 
um, to keep you safer. Right. Sure, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. We've put them away also to demonstrate that we have power, You know that we are capable of keeping certain people uh, away from you, those mm-hmm. who, who will do us or you harm. Mm-hmm. And those are important things for a state to show. Mm-hmm. So sure, the prison might be hidden and you don't see prisoners uh, anymore, uh, or you know, rarely you see them right. in, you know, along the highway briefly, but you don't usually see prisoners. Um, but it's also very important to any state, and this is not a, an evil thing, I, I think. I mean, there's, there are logical reasons for this. It's important for a state that you know that there are prisoners. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's an interesting thing to think about, right? Uh, I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. My guest is Padraig Kenny, author of Dance and Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World, published by Oxford University Press. Now, when we first began, you, you want to make a distinction here between uh, 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 prisons, prisoners, and the political prison, the political prisoner, right? The book is intent on making that kind of distinction. Right. Now, uh, I recognize that in some way all prisoners are political because anyone who's in prison is in prison because of a law, and laws are made by politics, by states, and so therefore every law that puts somebody in prison makes them, in some sense, a prisoner of politics. But that's a gigantic definition. If we throw everybody in and say everyone is political, then it's harder for us to understand what distinguishes a, someone whom we recognize as a political prisoner let's just use Nelson Mandela as sort of the ultimate example, Mm -hmm. what distinguishes him from somebody who has robbed a convenience store. Mm -hmm. And it's useful to have a way to talk about them differently. Mm -hmm. And so the way I think about it is that a political prisoner is someone who says, okay, I'm in prison. I am using that fact to continue to act on behalf of my political cause. Mm. I'm, you know, the prison is not a hindrance to my politics. Mm. Instead, it's a, it's a tool that I can continue to use. There's agency. Absolutely, there's agency. And that, that's the tricky part here because uh, the way I see it, states, one of the reasons that states put political opponents behind bars is to say to them, you no longer have agency. Mm-hmm. Forget about that. And so that struggle to say, yes, I can still act is, is for me really crucial. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so, and also in the introduction that uh, I read, there's a distinction between the criminal and the political. Why is that important? Well, for one thing, political prisoners often, not all the time, but very often, define, them, define themselves by what they are not. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing they're not, of course, is the state, since they're opposing it in mm-hmm, some way. Mm-hmm. But another thing they're not is criminals. And... You know, when I first started working on this, one of the things I assumed is that many political prisoners finding themselves among criminals would say, hey, I can convert them to the cause. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a socialist. Here's a downtrodden mm-hmm. proletarian. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't realize it, but I'm going to enlighten him. That hardly ever happens. Okay. You know, they, instead they say, nope, that's not me. I'm political right. and they're criminal. Mm. Now, um, we can get to this later perhaps, but you know, the, the distinction is an interesting one because uh, it does go to your, I think, your premise that it is an organized uh, culture or community of, of political beings as well, not just one prisoner, but multiple prisoners, not just uh, prisoners on the inside, but prisoners on the, I mean, um, outside political forces as well. So working in tandem to sort of create the community of political opposition in many ways. Right. And I guess you could say it's one that they have to constantly recreate. Mm-hmm. because it's not 
like you can get into prison and you immediately know what to do. Right. You've got to figure that out and everybody has to figure it out again mm. for mm-hmm. themselves. What do I do here now that I'm behind bars? Mm. What's well, a big part of the book is, is what happens behind bars. Right. <laughs> so, that's our, what I. That's what I wanted to. You know, I've never been in prison. Yeah, I mean, except right. as a tourist. Right. Uh, it's it's a, it's a place that's hard for me to understand, mm-hmm. and you know that's what I do as a historian is try to understand things that are not familiar to mm-hmm. me, and this was an ultimate test. Mm. What goes on there? What is it like? Yeah. Well, uh, and uh, talking about kind of the personal there, uh, uh, there's uh, there's the the feminist credo that the personal is political, and this is literally sort of literally true in your own relationship to the subject as well. You start out the book with a personal story. Well, that's right. I uh, uh, didn't realize it at the time how important this was going to be for me, but back in in the 1980s, I was uh, living in Poland, uh, starting to do research for. Uh, my dissertation, and I uh, encountered political prisoners sort of uh, marginally. For one thing, my uh, mother-in-law, my Polish mother-in-law, was a political prisoner twice in the early 1980s. Uh, The second time, uh, at about the time that I was meeting her daughter, and uh, she was, uh, you know, she had some great times in in prison as sort of part of a community, but also some very difficult times. And only later did she share those with me. Mm. Uh, And, you know, there again, I began to think, wait, what, how does that work? You know, here's this this wonderful woman who doesn't seem like a a prisoner type, whatever that might be. So so what is this? And I wanted to understand that. Right. And you you were able to then make the distinction between uh, the political and the criminal also. Yes, that's right, because she uh, told me a a very powerful story about how the first time she had been in prison, it was with all these amazing women intellectuals and activists, and she just came out, you know, Wonder Woman. I mean, she was so supercharged by that Mm -hmm. experience. You know, she was a woman with a high school education, uh, working in a factory, um, didn't have a maybe a wide horizon politically. And she goes in and she just comes out supercharged. Mm-hmm. I mean, the communists had totally mm-hmm. screwed this up. Three years later, she goes back to prison, and this time they put her in a cell with a woman who had, um, I think, killed her boyfriend with an ax. <laughs> and that was really different. Yeah. And that kind of broke her. Really? I mean, I, that's an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she came out and... Uh, a couple other things sort of influenced her to say, yeah, I think I'm going to put this activism aside for a while mm. um, because it was it was so difficult and so painful. It wasn't that, that community experience. Mm. Um, so it was, um, it was a, a difficult turning point. I think it. at one point in the book you, you suggest that the state might be aware of where they put you in the prison if you're a political prisoner, right? So do you have the sense that your, your mother-in-law was was put in with that person? Yes, I think so. Mm. I think so. Uh, it was a way for them. Look, one of the things that a state wants to do often uh, is to s- decide for itself who these people are. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that earlier detention in, in 1981-82 was that by putting all these political prisoners from solidarity in together, you're, you're saying, well, yep, they're, they're this community of oppositionists and we're keeping them all together. Right. But one of the things states often want to do 
is say, you know, actually, you might think they're oppositionists and they're political, but really they're criminal. Right, right. They're, you know, because they're engaged in, in, in activity against the state. That's a criminal thing. Right. And what better way to do that than put politicals right. in together with criminals? And yeah. you can say, see? <laughs> there you go. It's time for a break. This is Strachny Nalachny. Strachny Nalachny. Close, yes, sorry. Uh, or the Scarecrows, I think. That's is, right. right. Yeah, That's right. With black bread and black coffee. And in Polish? Czarny chleb i czarna kawa. And this was written in 1974 in a prison by Jezny Wyszynski? Yes. All right. Uh, who was convicted for public singing of political songs, apparently. Stay with us for more on The Political Prisoner with Patrick Kenny when Interchange returns on WFHB. Pociąg złe wagony do więzienia wiozą mnie Świat ma tylko cztery strony, a w tym świecie nie ma mnie Gdy swe oczy otworzyłem, wielki żal ogarnął mnie Po policzkach łzy spłynęły, zrozumiałem wtedy, że And support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepostmagazine.com. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show is on the modern political prisoner, almost a career option in the 20th century. Patrick Kenny is our guest in the studio today. He's professor of history and international studies at Indiana University, author of Dance in Chains, published by Oxford University Press. You suggested that song for us tonight, Patrick. Why? Well, uh, first of all, it's a... uh uh, it's just a great song and a great <laughs> band, but uh, you know I like the way that uh, it uh, the the, um, the refrain talks about you know searching for happiness, which is really called freedom. And uh, what struck me as I was thinking about what would be interesting to hear is the way that though that kind of theme of searching for freedom and thinking about prior generations who've also 
longed for freedom is kind of a theme through uh, the political prisoner experience. Mm, mm. People who get into the cell and say, who was here before me? Oh, right. They also right, wanted right, to get right, out. Right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, now, you start the book with, uh, um, I think, with a woman, right? Zofia uh, Grabska? That's right. Uh, and uh, and you, you do actually kind of set that scene, that that specific scene up. She, she's looking for particular uh, evidences of those who came before her. That's right. She gets into the cell, and the first thing she thinks is, okay, what, what can I find out? And, you know, what names are, are scrawled on the, on the walls? And that's a, that's a, a theme I found uh, quite common in Irish uh, cells, in Polish cells, and in South African ones as well. You want to know who has been there because you feel connected to them, uh, especially if you feel that they were fighting for the for the same cause as you. Mm-hmm. Now that's about that's like I said, it's uh, kind of when the book begins. What what year is that 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 she's. Uh She's That's in the eighteen nineties. Eighteen nineties, and uh, so she's. Uh, but you say that she kind of is the uh, not that she specifically creates the break or a change, but you, you use her as an illustration of right. how how this is a period when when people begin to be political prisoners. But you also distinguish how she is a cla- like a, a prisoner of a particular class as well, and she's she has a, a particular kind of prison experience. Right. So, uh, political prisoners in the nineteenth century would usually be uh, of noble uh, background and the prison officials and the you know the czar or king or whoever would often treat them as well you know they've gone astray now this doesn't mean they would necessarily be treated better mm-hmm. you you might say well they're noble and they've betrayed their class so they must suffer but there was a tendency of sort of, of sort of thinking well we can understand them mm-hmm. it's in the 20th century that we have people of lower class that the both the prison regime and the uh, the leadership might say well we don't understand them at all they're alien to us mm. now i don't recall why why she was there in the first place well, she was a socialist uh, she'd participated in a march uh, in support of uh, Polish nationalism. Okay. Socialists and nationalists were uh, kind of overlapping at that time. Mm-hmm. And so off she goes to prison. And not for very long, but then eventually she goes off to Siberia as well. That, that was often a, uh, you know, a further fate for right. uh, mm-hmm. Polish protesters. Yikes. And and that is hard to uh, I guess conceive sometimes. You talked about it earlier, trying to understand what it means to to go to prison, to be in prison, to to fashion a self within within prison prison as well as a part of the book. Yes, but what uh, I guess always amazes me because it's something that's hard hard to imagine, as you say, is how often uh, I encountered people who rejoice. Mm. You know, there there is a story in the book of a. Um, an unnamed uh, artist connected probably loosely with the Polish socialists uh, who uh, a fellow socialist sees him, uh, you know, standing in line going into prison uh, or waiting for transport or something like that. And maybe it's 1905 or so. And this artist is, is exulting. I'm in chains. I'm in chains. You know, it's this performance like, check it out. I'm the real thing now. Mm. Uh, And 80 years later, I I find a, um, a white South African student uh, in prison in 1985 writing in his diary, you know, finally they'll take me seriously. You know, because he's white, he's in the African National Congress, mm-hmm. which was and still is multi-ethnic, but there, there was always a sense of, yeah, you know, you're a white kid, you're not going to be right. really active, um, you're not committed. Mm-hmm. And he's saying to himself, and he writes in his diary quite honestly, now, 
Now they will take me seriously. <laughs> well, why not? I mean, it's right. it is, and and it's true. Right, you know, right, it is right, it right. is a uh, legitimation right. of of your right. beliefs. Well, now you mentioned a few countries already, so your your book does focus on on uh, uh, three in particular, a three primary, right? Right, right. I chose Poland and Ireland and South Africa uh, for several reasons. First of all, they're they are different enough from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, each of them have a really long history of political imprisonment, mm-hmm. a century or more. So there are a lot of rich stories. Um, and frankly, it doesn't hurt that because they are all now democracies, uh, it was possible mm. to get into the archives right. and, and learn those stories. Right. You can do the work of the historian. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. exactly. Uh, now, they, they have long histories of having political prisoners. Why? Why, why, why are some uh, states prone to putting people in prison, others prone to executing them, uh, others you know, not? Having uh, letting people march and not caring about it. Well, I guess I'd have to answer that. It'd be tough to find a country that doesn't have some history of political imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those histories get less so over the 20th century. And so most um, West European countries after the 1940s don't have very many, although they certainly have some. And Britain is a great example mm-hmm. um, of such a country. And so would be Spain as, mm-hmm. a, as another one or Portugal. Mm. And actually, you know, it's, it really does get hard to come up with uh, total exceptions and probably ones that I would say are exceptions. I just don't know their histories well enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say that on the early side, I mean, some countries don't really have organized prisons until the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, and some countries, I mean, if if we were to say, you know, Norway, for example, um, there may be some people in Norway, and I can think of one who would say, yes, I'm a political prisoner. Uh, you know, that, that, that uh, guy, Anders Breivik, who committed a massacre mm-hmm. a few years ago, mm-hmm. he would probably say he's a political sure. prisoner. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say he is or he isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something to, to, to study. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is possible that we could use that definition. And so by that uh, same light, we could probably find people in almost any country that we could say, yes, that at least it potentially is a mm-hmm. candidate mm-hmm. For, for study as a political prisoner. Well, you make the point that there's there's no necessarily good or bad political prisoner. You, you mentioned Mandela earlier, which we uphold, uh, mm-hmm. and, and rightly so. And then you also mentioned Hitler being a political prisoner. Right. Hitler was a political prisoner. Uh, and so that does remind us that, um, you know, I think that the shorthand when we say political prisoner, um, you know, when someone will say, do you realize that America has political prisoners? The shorthand there is good people imprisoned by bad people. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, but a political prisoner can also be a bad person who's held by good people. <laughs> Uh, or at least neutral, <laughs> if, if we don't want to get too deeply into the politics. Right. So when I started looking at political prisoners, it was important to me not to uh, apply uh, value judgments and mm-hmm. look at people I agree with or like or admire. I wanted to understand them in the same way that if you want to understand street protests as, as a phenomenon— Broadly, you wouldn't say, "Well, I only want to study this by looking at people I agree with." Mm-hmm, Certainly, mm-hmm. you'd want to understand all kinds of street protests. So, the same with political prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of people in this book who whose politics I I don't share. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's as it should be. Mm. Well, uh, the the primary question I think is is as much what is like why is this a, um, a kind of um, relationship? Like we talk about, it's it's good. I, I suppose that it's the dance and change bec- chains because we're thinking about what the state and the prisoner as they dance around each other and need each other in the in the in the dance itself, right? Right. I mean, uh, listeners can't see the cover, but mm-hmm. it shows a. Uh, uh, a black prisoner in a South African prison doing a dance, which is meant to show whether he's uh, hiding anything on his body. Um, and it's a it's not a joyful dance, although perhaps he is trying to make it as, as best he can. But what's important to me in that picture is that he is in a way dancing with the guard who is watching him. Right. And the guard is just standing there, but he's implicated in that dance. Mm-hmm. And the dance happens because the guard says, okay, now, right. Do the dance. Yeah, he's not um, shooting at his feet, but he might as well be, right? Might as well be. Right. That's right. exactly right. right. And I'm sure in earlier times he might have had a whip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, probably at that time, the picture is taken in the 1950s. There probably were prisons where the guard did have a whip. Sure. Um, but that's still uh, a kind of a dance. So yes, there's a there's a relationship between the two. The state needs, I guess we could say, the state needs the political prisoners in order to show. Sometimes, at least, in order to show, show, see, we are opposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are reasons why we have to impose uh, strictures on the rest of society because there are dangerous people who want to bring us down. Mm -hmm. Um, And to a, I won't say that opposition needs prison in the same way. That would be unfair because oppositions could flourish just fine without prison. But we can say that oppositions use prison. Say, look, here are martyrs or our our men and women who are suffering for the cause, and they can use that to uh, organize supporters. Mm -hmm. You know, let us write letters, let's send them food. Um, And this doesn't necessarily have to be partisans. Amnesty International, after all, emerges as an organization that draws people in to help prisoners. Let's take another break. This is the Robben Island Singers with Kure Kure Kwatinova, which means far away is my home in Bantu, the language native to the Shona people of Zimbabwe. Robben Island was used as a prison during uh, during apartheid in South Africa. Nobel laureate and former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, was imprisoned there for 18 of the 27 years he served behind bars before the fall of apartheid. Robben Island appears to be open to tourists now, a la Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay. Stay with us for more on The Political Prisoner with Padre Kenny when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, 
serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show is on the modern political prisoner. Our guest is Patrick Kenny, whose new book is published by Oxford, Univ- Oxford University Press. It's called Dance in Change, Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World. I keep wanting to say change there for some reason. Huh? Um, uh, we went to the break and we were talking um, about, well, actually we went to the break and then Padraig and I talked during the break. Sorry, everybody. I, I, it's a secret. No, I'm going to let you in on it now. So that song, uh, obviously, uh, from the Robin Island Singers. And I mentioned that uh, Robin Island is, is open to tourists now. And Padraig, you, you'd been there. Yes. Well, while I was doing research in uh, South Africa, uh, some of the time I was spent in Cape Town, and I went out to Robben Island, uh, of course, I have to admit that um, one of the features of this research was that I dragged my family to a lot of prisons, (laughs) and this was one of them. Um, Oh, look, there's a prison museum here. I think that was the most hated words in in the family for a while. Uh, But uh, this was one I think we all did want to visit, of course. I mean, Robben Island is almost a mythic place. And uh, we went uh, for a tour, and that certainly helped us to understand just how far it is from the mainland. Mm. One of the other things that was fascinating for me about the tour is that all of the guides at Robben Island are former prisoners. And naturally, they start the tour by, by saying, well, you know, I spent, let's say, five years in Robben Island. Uh, before that, I mean, our, our guide said, you know, before that, I was a, uh, a student leader. Uh, and, you know, we had, uh, you know, meetings at our school, and then they, they broke this up, and, and they threw me in prison. Now, one of the things that, that I found fascinating was that twice during the tour, when he asked for questions, someone would say, uh, okay, but what were you in for? Mm. Right? In other words, there's sort of the sense of, yeah, so you say you're, you know, he's a published poet. You could buy his poetry in the, in the, in the book, in the uh, gift store. Um, and he told us he was a student leader, but still there's that, there's that sense that almost, uh, you know, he had to be a criminal. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, Wait, they yeah. didn't throw you in prison for being a poet, yeah. right? So what yeah. did you do yeah. to finally get in prison? And yeah. he would each time very patiently, I'm sure he'd had that question a thousand times. He'd say, well, you know, I was a poet and a student leader and that's why they threw me in prison. Yeah. It is hard to think yeah. about it that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, um, 
so you you get the sense there, I assume, on Robben Island, as you say, it's far away from the mainland. I think um, uh, you said ten ten miles during the break, and it's uh, it's a place you're you're on you're on an island. You're alone. There's there's a, a totality of experience there, and I think during the book you you mention uh, prison as a total institution or some totalizing institution or something like that, right? And is that the experience you get when when you you go to a place like that as well? The sense that there's this is the only thing that there is. That yeah, it, it's a it's a total controlled experience, and you mm-hmm. could say there's uh, a great difference between being in a you know eight foot by eight foot cell uh, with a tiny window on the one hand, and on the other hand, being on an island where you're sent out for work detail mm-hmm. every day, and you're seeing the sea and the sky and and all of that, um, but. In the end, both are total experiences where mm. you cannot escape. That is that is your entire world, and you know that somebody else controls that experience. Mm. So, uh, pr- a prison being one uh, a total institution, uh, did you um, uh, is mili- the military one as well, or are there others that we say, oh, this is also a total institution? Or uh, sure, uh, mm. total institutions would would include mental institutions. Mm. A hospital is a total institution. Mm. Uh, the military certainly is. Um, schools perhaps mm-hmm. can be you know mm-hmm. we might say a boarding school yeah, sure. is in some ways a mm-hmm. uh, a total institution and so you know obviously these are very very different mm-hmm. um, and one thing about most total institutions is they have some goal mm. you know we're going to make you into men who are going to fight or we're going to make you healthy again right um, prison has that idea of rehabilitation yeah. and you know, it's one that is maybe more honored in the breach. Uh, Has it always had it? Uh, like I can easily imagine, like I know that there's, uh, I can hold uh, you know, uh, some Quakers responsible for some sense of, right. of refor- prison reform or the idea that we're going to put somebody in a, a cell and, and put, dig a hole or uh, dig a hole, put him in it and give him a little light at the top and think you, you look up towards heaven and realize that you need to be born again, born through the prison. and. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, there is something like that. And <laughs> right. indeed, you know, the modern prison emerges at the same time as this idea of reform, right. that people can be reformed. And often the ideas of how they're going to be reformed are um, not only uh, ridiculous, but <laughs> also terrifying. <laughs> right. So, for example, right. you know, early 19th century prison uh, ideas of reforming prisoners uh, involve total silence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, no communication, which we now recognize leads to mental illness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But still there was that idea of reform and that idea remains important and even remains important uh, today when we look at uh, criminal prisoners. States at least gesture towards that. Mm-hmm. But they tend not to gesture that way towards political prisoners who are understood usually to be incorrigible mm. because after all, it's their ideas, it's right. their beliefs and that's just not going to change. Right. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. My guest is Padraig Kenny, author of Dance in Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World. Uh, so the this is the point, too, that political, as we've been saying, political prisons, political prisoners, the idea of being a part of that particular activity is a community activity in many ways. It becomes an identity. Uh, so maybe take us through that that idea. You know, what, uh, choose a particular example in which a community is sort of evolves around this experience. Sure. So in uh, interwar Poland, 
most of the political prisoners were communists. And one of the first things they did in prison was organize uh, what they called communes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they weren't the first to do this. Prisoners before the war had done it, but the, uh, uh, the communists developed this to a very high degree where, first of all, they would share food. So you'd be getting parcels from outside, or some people would get parcels from outside, uh, those whose relatives lived nearby uh, or who had maybe slightly better-off families. Um, And these communes would really strictly share that food. Hmm. Now, the communists took it to quite an extreme degree, I guess, you know, when they finally controlled the state, they would show just how far they could take this, you know, central planning and everything. Mm-hmm. So they would have elaborate organizations to determine just how this food is going to be shared. Um, but the idea is a, is a basic one. That's, that's not uncommon mm-hmm. in, in a lot of prisons. Um, another example, and I think actually very similar, would be the men and the women of the Irish Republican Army in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, sharing food wasn't so important, uh, more important to them. I mean, their, their food was better, marginally at least, although they did get some food and tobacco to share. Tobacco is always incredibly important to share. Um, but uh, something that was extremely important to them was sharing education. Mm-hmm. So a really important motor of bringing people together in the prisons of Northern Ireland was studying Irish. Mm. Now, your average prisoner... Entering prison at the age of 18 or 21 or something like that, been active in the IRA, uh, isn't going to know much Irish. Uh, but they would have this idea as being interested in Irish nationalism that that the Irish language is something that's really important to me and I, I should learn it. Well, uh, who's going to have time to study Irish right. unless you're in prison, right? right? I mean, right. if you really want to uh, study something, um, that that that, that, is, that is a way. And, and many IRA prisoners became fluent in Irish. Hmm. Uh, you know, you spend years and years with not a lot else to do. Right. Uh, you know, the prison library isn't so great. Right. Um, there aren't too many TV channels if you have access to that. So, sure, they learned a lot of Irish. Well, see, you, you make this point also. The state must come to understand it's failing in many ways if it's trying to erase or eradicate a particular mode of existence, uh, the, the opposition to the state or uh, an, uh, an idea of a different kind of state, state actually grows stronger in this group, right? That's right. Uh, you know, the state's idea, again, is, you know, put people in a box and tell them your, your game is over, you know, you're, you're done. The only way you get out, well, in some states, you know, you go out feet first, you'll mm-hmm. die here. Right. Um, or you get out when you show us that you have renounced right. entirely um, your uh, activities and your cause. Um, and that tends not to happen. But, you know, it's not because... I would say it's not because the cause is so great, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the cause has a spirit, whether it's Irish nationalism or Polish communism or the anti-apartheid movement or whatever. It's not that the cause is so great. It's that these men and women in this place discover that they can, through their actions, their actions of, of acting together, of singing or learning or engaging in protest together, can show, no, you actually haven't stopped us. Mm -hmm. We continue to act. We continue to be who we are. Mm -hmm. And 
we can make life very difficult for you. Mm-hmm. Are there ga- there uh, there clear gains in this particular dance? Uh, you know, are, are we able to flip partners, uh, one lead and one follow, uh, at some point? Yes, I would say so. Uh, I would say not always. I mean, some prisoners uh, emerge broken. Some movements are broken uh, by prison. There's no question, but some movements are able through the sheer force of their and relentlessness of their organizing uh, are able to, sure, flip the script. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess for me, the, the, the great example of this would be the men on Robben Island. Mm-hmm. So there are hundreds of them imprisoned, and early on they're imprisoned with, uh, with criminal prisoners mm-hmm. um, thanks to an incredibly daring hunger strike in 1966. They're able to... Uh, gain uh, a measure of autonomy. And this strike is incredibly daring because from the perspective of their white um, uh, guards, you know, these men are are barely human, let them die. Um, But they're able to, uh, through that strike, to gain a bit of autonomy. And then after that, uh, the prison is forced to recognize that, well, we can't just have them work all day. They need to have other things to do. And so the prisoners say, well, could we play soccer? Mm -hmm. Well, sure, that seems pretty innocuous. But what they did on Robben Island was they didn't just play soccer. They had soccer leagues, which meant they had referees, which meant Mm -hmm. they had rules, which meant they had clubs with club officials and a whole bureaucracy around that. And that bureaucracy is a way for them to train themselves and to remind themselves how to be political. Mm. So you had to you had to tolerate different perspectives. You had to, for example, and this is not a small thing, you had to learn to respect the, re- the referee. Mm-hmm. And they took this incredibly seriously because that's mm. politics. Respect order, respect mm. law and order. Mm. Fascinating. Well, uh, we'll come back to that after this final break. This is Bonnie Mary of Argyle, a traditional Scottish ballad performed by John McCormick. Eddie Daniels sentenced to 15 years in 1964 for sabotage and being a member of the Liberal Party of South Africa and the African Resistance Movement served his prison time with Nelson Mandela. Daniels described how after the first two or three years, the authorities allowed them to organize a concert on Christmas and New Year's Eve. Each inmate presented a song which could not be political, cracked a joke or recited poetry from his own isolation cell, which reverberated down the austere concrete corridor while a master of ceremonies conducted the proceedings. Daniels usually sang Galway Bay, an Irish freedom song. Nelson Mandela chose Bonnie Mary of Argyle. Quote, Mr. Mandela's cell is down the way, and his voice floats up this grim corridor, and it's such a gentle voice, and he sings this song. Unquote. Stay with us for more on The Political Prisoner with Padraig Kenny when Interchange returns on WFHB. But a sweeter song has cheered 
to me as the evening's gentle glow, and I've seen an eye still brighter than the dewdrop on the And support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show is on the modern political prisoner. Our guest is Padraig Kenny, whose new book, published by Oxford University Press, is Dance in Chains. Again, that was John McCormick with Bonnie Mary of Argyle, a traditional Scottish ballad. It seems strange that we played it in this particular uh, program. It didn't quite go with the rest of our music. But at the same time, it was due to that story that we told before, uh, Nelson Mandela choosing to actually sing that song from his prison cell um, to, what, demonstrate his humanity, the freedom to sing about beauty and and love? Well, sure, there's that, but I think also what was very important to Mandela, certainly, and to many other prisoners, was to demonstrate their, um, their education. Mm, okay. These were highly educated men, Mandela, a lawyer, for example, and mm. uh, they were usually much better educated than their uh, captors, mm-hmm. uh, who were, you know, simple men usually, not educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, you know, so taking that opportunity to say, you know, uh, I'm actually a pretty educated guy. I'm not mm-hmm. um, anything like that stereotype that you might uh, imagine. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, so we opened the show with uh, a song about the hunger strikes of 1981. This is, uh, again, in this is in Ireland. Right. Uh, and we, you just mentioned before hunger strikes here at Robben Island as well. Mm. Mandela himself, not exactly a pro-hunger strike person, though, even though he went along with it. Yes, because uh, he didn't believe that anything could be achieved. He, he thought that the, um, uh, the regime would you know, essentially... Uh, stonewall them and everyone, everyone might just die. Mm-hmm. But he still joined the hunger strike because that's what you do. You you join your, your, your comrades. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The solidarity is important. Yeah, I think you wrote it, he called it quixotic. I mean, because, and it relies on publicity, which is the that's big the point. That's the other problem. Yeah. Exactly. And any protest uh, or successful protests rely on uh, 
rely on publicity, on being able to get uh, information out. And in that case, they were able to mm. uh, through, a, through a friendly warder, but it was not uh, a foregone conclusion that they'd be able to get news of their hunger strike. Yeah, out. you can just not eat and die. Yeah, yeah. Yep. and, and rot no and, and die it. in isolation. Right. No one will ever know. So it's an interesting, uh, obviously an in- interesting tactic or uh, to to be, and I think you use the word martyr many times. Uh, I, you don't use the word hero in many ways, right? So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's right. Uh heroism uh is not a term that really works very well in prison and I don't think too many prisoners would use that term about anyone around them. And yet at as the as we move out into the public uh perception of some uh, of these particular martyrs, surely they're seen as heroes even if they're martyrs. Sure, that's right because they are doing something that is difficult to imagine which right. and and which we ourselves might not do and mm-hmm. so there can really be a sense that they are suffering uh f- for us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in a way. Now, the again, the first song uh, has as much to do, or I actually, I as I said, I found it on a uh, uh, a Bobby Sands memorial page, basically, or you know, information about Bobby Sands. Can you tell us a little bit about Bobby Sands? Sure. So, uh, Bobby Sands was uh, uh, one of the most prominent uh, men in the Irish Republican Army uh, in the late seventies uh, in prison. Uh, he became. Uh, recognized by fellow prisoners as as really a leader among them, uh, a leader in education, a leader in, in talking about the cause, and then uh, really an organizational leader. Mm. Um, and this culminates in his uh, decision to lead uh, the very difficult hunger strike of March through October 1981, in which 10 men, beginning with Bobby Sands, died. Mm. Uh, and it was a particularly brutal hunger strike uh, because, beginning with Sands, each man began the strike alone and essentially you know, informed the authorities, I'm on strike, I'm on strike until I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And when Sands died, for example, the next day another man said, well, I'm stepping in now to take his place. Oh. And others were coming in at the rate of usually one a week. Mm. Um, and uh, not all of them died. Um, there were numbers still alive when the when the strike ended. Um, but Why that, did it end? Uh, well, it ended in part because uh, it had been going on for more than six months, and some relatives were getting frantic. Uh, there was a sense of maybe sort of wavering support. I mean, how long could it go on? But at the same time, the authorities were also eager for it to end. This mm-hmm. was not a, a comfortable thing. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was very tough on it and suggested that, you know, these were criminals and so therefore they can do what they want, uh, mm-hmm. but she was not going to respond. But at the same time, behind the scenes, is there was a sense of, we've got to bring this to an end. So they promised some concessions, which turned out to be v- pretty minor ones, but it was enough to bring the strike to an end. Mm. In a way that seemed like it was uh, maybe a failure, mm-hmm. but over the long term, I think it... Uh, contributed to uh, a successful end to the troubles. Mm. Well, I'm going to shift. I'm going to do a a very quick shift here. We're about out of time. And I know your book ends with a consideration of uh, Guantanamo Bay as a uh, political prison. And if it uh, it does match your your research and match what you think of uh, what uh, a political prison would be and if these are actually political prisoners. Right. So I decided, you know, I've, I've worked out all of these ideas about what a political prisoner is based on these historical cases. Okay, let's apply it to a contemporary case and, and see does that 
does that work uh, with Guantanamo? It's more difficult because you know we don't have the archives. We don't. Right. We can't see the prison. It's still ongoing. There are still forty-one men there, and they're now known as the Forever Prisoners. Right. But we do have memoirs. I have stamps that are Forever stamps. Uh, yes, I'd rather have a Forever stamp than a Forever. It's an embarrassing thing to say, but at the yes. same time, it strikes me as pertinent mm-hmm. somehow. You worked that out. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how, but I can tell you this: that. When I, when I looked at the prisoners on Guantanamo, it became clear to me that even if many of them did not enter the prison thinking politically, after all, some of them were there by chance. Yeah, you know, swept up in You in get denounced yeah. by somebody for a mm-hmm. bounty. You know, the going rate in Pakistan mm-hmm. was something like $1,000. Anybody will work. Yeah. You know, heck, I, I think yeah. we probably all have somebody we would denounce for a thousand bucks. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and certainly in, in Pakistan, that was... That was um, the case, and so people enter maybe non-politically. Mm-hmm. Some of them, some of them were definitely politically active, were members of Al Qaeda or or the Taliban, um, but they acted as political prisoners. Uh, that is, they used the prison in order to uh, further things that were important to them. Mm-hmm. They acted collectively, or many of them learned to act collectively. And conversely, I should probably have started with this: the state treats them like political prisoners. Mm. Uh, that is, they uh, try to rename them by saying, you know, no, they're all, you know, they're 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 terrorists, they're criminals. Right. Um, they try to uh, change the way they understand themselves. They try to deny them information. Right. They try to change their their sense of their sense of identity, even. Right. And that's how states treat political prisoners. So for me, there's no question that they're political. And again, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, some of the response I've gotten is. God, how can you say they're political prisoners? Right. Which is a value statement. You're saying sure. they're good guys. I'm not saying they're good guys. Right. I'm not saying they're bad guys. I'm just saying, yep, they're political prisoners. Yeah. Well, you do point out throughout just the way that they communicate and also the difficulty of knowing that any of this is literally true, like what you know about them, right? So, right. I mean, we did a show actually here on uh, Muhammadu. Slahi's oh, uh, Guantanamo right. Bay. And, you know, it seemed questionable to me that this was... A reality, and or the, that this was written, like I just, in some ways, I was making not maybe value judgments in terms of my understanding of it as literature, in some way too, as I was reading it, like it was literature. Right. So it became difficult for me to understand it as a political thing, uh, but more a text that I didn't necessarily trust, not because mm-hmm. it was his, but because of the entire. Th- Guantanamo Bay thing, right? That they're who who gets to speak to them? When do right. the lawyers come? Did he actually speak to these interrogators this way? Are these interrogators telling this particular truth? You know, it just became a thing. I didn't know how to believe any of it. Well, you know, that's usually true with prison stories that we don't have any corroboration. Right, right. they just exist, and we have to take the documents as they are and try to understand them. Sure. Well, that's our show. Thanks to IU Professor of History and International Studies, Padre Kenny, for joining us today. His new book is Dance in Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks, Padre. Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Next time on Interchange, The Dictatorship of Work, Elizabeth Anderson joins us to talk about private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. In many workplaces, employers minutely regulate worker speech, clothing, and manners, totalizing almost, Patrick, yes, leaving them with little privacy and few other rights, and employers often extend their authority to workers' off-duty lives. 
Workers can be fired for their political speech, recreational activities, diet, and almost anything else employers care to govern. The Dictatorship of Work, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and Bryce Martin is studio engineer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.